Chijin. I'm not Jackson. So if you wanna mix it up with someone else once in a while, so I'll be going to read from Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit, spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who, those who sit in the darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Hello, everybody. You doing okay? I'm going to take a tediously long time clearing this music stand, as usual. All right. We're moving over. Spring break. Amazing. Life-changing. We're already back at it, Davidson. Midweeks part eight. Midterms part eight. Um, anyway, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship, RUF. Uh, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all on this campus. We mean you all in the broadest sense of that word. Uh, wherever you are and whoever you are, I hope you feel welcome. And really, we just really want to represent every scene on campus and every possible personal background. And so, um, and we mean that even spiritually. You might not be uh, really convinced about Jesus. You might not call yourself a believer. Uh, in fact, you might not even be sure what to call yourself. We're just glad you're here and we hope you feel really welcomed. Um, and if you're new to RUF, this is like your first time, thanks especially for coming. Uh, that means a lot, especially this time of year. Um, and if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you. And Maddie and Eric, yes, raise your hands. There we go. Okay, don't be shy. They're your interns, not my interns. So um, they're here to love and help you. So if you wanna, hopefully you get a chance to meet them, they'd love to meet you. And other students also would love to meet you too if you're new, so. I know I say that every week, but I say it every week because I mean it every week. I know. Um, also, just I'm a I'm a big fan. So there are kinds of there are kinds of people, right? There's the person that's the peace faker who flees conflict or awkwardness. There's the person that is the peace breaker, the person sort of embraces awkwardness and goes towards it. I'm more on the peace breaker side. So let's just talk about the awkwardness that's going on. Uh, so. Uh, some of you, I have to do this because some of you don't check your email ever, and I haven't talked to you about this in person, um, or you're not on our email list, but um, I accepted a job 
um, as the senior pastor of North Cross Church. Um, I will finish the semester out. I will be here. Um, we'll hold hands together all the way through May. And then, um, Lord willing, things will work out where I will take this job at North Cross, which is down the street, like five or ten minutes. I will stay in my house, 545 Jeton Street, Uptown Davidson, still there. Um, I will still drink lots of coffee at Summit on Main Street, I'm sure. Um, and uh, I will enjoy not eating at the Den or Union every single day. I will miss the people, I will miss the parfaits of the den, but other than that, <laughs> but I still have a few buds with you. And I also want you to know that this isn't the end of our relationship. This isn't some sort of awkward speech about that. Um, I still am very able to have a relationship with you. Would love to still kind of uh, have a relationship. It will change because I'm not gonna be the next campus minister. Along those lines, Maddie and Eric are staying for next year and they hope to have a new campus minister by June 1st. So transitions will be seamless, I'm sure. Uh, and so, but I just thought I'd talk about it because again, I'm a peace breaker and that's what I do. I, I address awkwardness. In fact, arguably it's a love language. So um, anyway, last thing I guess I'll say is I really, really love you all. Uh, I've loved this job. I've loved this campus. I went here. Um, I will always love all of the above. And um, you also are welcome to come to my church if you want to. I'll be senior pastor there, and um, but also if you're plugged into a place that you call home for church, please don't feel any pressure, okay? So I feel like I have to say all those things. If you want to talk about it more, talk to me after next to the snacks. We can always go to the Union or the Den um, or Nummit um, again, or you can catch me at Main Street Summit per usual. Okay, so we're going to pivot. I know I've, I've addressed the awkwardness. Here we go. Deep breaths. This is so good for us. Um, <laughs> So we're going to pivot our attention to the book of Isaiah, because we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. Um, so, and we're looking at the topic of who God is. As a reminder, we're studying Isaiah and who God is this semester for a few reasons. I'm going to give you two. First, Isaiah's visions of God are like this museum, like the Louvre. And it's just filled with straight masterpieces, to quote a song. So much so that Isaiah has been often called the fifth gospel. What that means is there's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John, and there's Isaiah. They all talk so clearly about Jesus as God, um, the God who became man, that they're all included in one breath. They show and tell Jesus as God vividly, and um, they help us to ask this helpful question that I think is really important, which is, are we really sure we know who God is? Are we sure we know who God is? Um, and so we're hoping that we can wrestle with that together. Second, this series comes out of my personal experience of cancer and radiation this past summer. Again, remember, I like, I'm a peace breaker. We're gonna talk about awkward things. Okay, the short version of that story is that it was a time, and still is a time, where I don't know what God's up to about the cancer or the radiation, I didn't know that, but I had to trust who God is in that moment. And so a lot of what this series comes out of is my personal wrestling match spiritually. And so um, I want you to kind of realize that your life is going to have situations that maybe already is in situations of intense difficulty, whether it's uh, suffering like cancer or whether it's a joy that kind of feels too good to be true and you're just worried it's going to fall up beneath you any minute or even just kind of cosmic boredom. Um, I just want you to know that we can trace God and who he is at a heart and character level together and part of what we're doing this semester is training in that. So again, to, to recap, this semester so far, we've seen God's nearness and his bigness, 
God's holiness, his trustworthiness. God is the object of our hope, God's patience, and God's power. Tonight, we're going to look together at Isaiah 42, and we're going to look at God's surprising gentleness. Gentle. Okay, so look, before we go anywhere else and I break more peace, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, I really am thankful for these students and thankful for the opportunity to spend a Tuesday night with them. Um, and I just thank you for the precious moments that we get. And I pray that you would be with this, uh, these words, that you'd use um, this foolishness yet again, <laughs> that you would speak to us through your words, that you would meet us where we need to be met. Uh, Jesus, that you would reach us um, however we feel about you in this room in this moment. And I pray, Jesus, most of all, that you would be high and lifted up and you'd be more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts and that you would not let us leave this room without encountering you and changing as a result of relating to you and you relating to us. We ask this, we plead this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So um, last spring, about this time, maybe a little later, I went to this local brewery. It was new in Cornelius with a few friends of mine. And the brewery closed pretty early. They're like, they like to do that. And so we decided to take a long walk around this really awkward, big complex in, in Cornelius. Um, the complex was fairly new. I don't know if you've seen some of these things sort of off on the offshoot ro- roads of Main Street. Um, it was filled with a lot of vacant warehouse spaces, um, you know, like spaces that are going to be filled with the typical things like kids bounce houses. <laughs> I don't know, like breweries, more breweries, <laughs> churches. <laughs> standard trophy shops and then also those specialty supply stores like the pool store how do they stay in business or like the other ones like the immature magician shop or whatever take your hobby and put it in a shop and they have them in these warehouse spaces anyway three of us were walking around this complex and we're kind of on the back side of the complex um and you know it's kind of new so it's this lighting is spotty you know some of the stores have lights outside some of them don't even have stores and it's, so it's a little bit dark it's 10:30 p.m and we're walking around together and we're at the bottom of this fairly steep hill. And um, it looks up into sort of this loading bay dock area. Again, that's part of the feature of these awkward warehouse spaces. And all of a sudden, we're walking and talking, and we hear this very loud barking noise. Like, let's just say a lot of barking noises at once, because it was. And um, we turn, we look up, and we see this pack of dogs just sprinting downhill at us at, like, just breakneck speed. There were some that were very big and some that were, let's be honest, very small. (laughs) But it was a whole pack of dogs. I'd say 10 to 15. um, And they were hauling straight at us. And um, they were all lunging and growling as they sprinted down this hill. And I had one of those classic fight, flight, or freeze moments. And I chose the last option, freeze. That's what I did. (laughs) And actually, it's funny when it comes to your mind in those moments. I don't know if you've had those moments recently. Like, you have no... You have no control of your thought process. So all of a sudden, I started thinking about this eighth grade teacher I had, Mr. Wolf. And Mr. Wolf was a history teacher, but he was also the varsity high school football coach. Anyway, he spent a whole class period, most of a class period, talking about what to do when a wild dog attacks you, because that was who he was, Mr. Wolf was. Anyway, I think it was during the Civil War unit. But anyway, like, he, American history be gone, we were talking about wild dog attacks. And I instinctually I became 13 years old again in that moment frozen like a statue and I followed his advice and so I turned slightly looked over my shoulder stuck out my left leg and I thought to myself if they take it 
if the dogs eat it and they just tear it off, I can still drive. <laughs> and, because I'm right-footed, and arguably play some soccer. Maybe just some, not, not in a lot. Anyway, so this is an intense scene. So the first few lead dogs reach us. And I can remember the first snout kind of coming out of the darkness at me. And the body was this blur, but the, you know, the lamp over there caught its eyes. And I saw its mouth open, really, really big. And then I like kind of scrunched even more frozen. And then it proceeded to lick me <laughs> and nuzzle my leg, my calf. In fact, all of the dogs did this. <laughs> they rushed over, they sniffed us, and they wanted a pet. And I think actually this story gets a lot at Isaiah chapter 42 and what it feels like, especially to the original audience. Uh, Isaiah originally wrote this, this uh, prophecy to a group of people who were captured and exiled by the Babylonians. They were under sort of an alien oppressor. They were aching in their very bone marrow for God's justice, for his promised plans to happen in their lives. They had repeatedly not trust God and they showed this lack of trust by kind of caring only about themselves and trampling the least and the last and the lost and the left out people around them. And so they kind of expected, they were sort of frozen, turned away, expecting God's justice and his judgment. That, By the way, justice and judgment are the same Hebrew word, mishpat. They expected God to bring his power like a pack of growling, snarling, barking dogs, sprinting fangs first down a hill in the dark. That's what they expected. And Isaiah's Israelite audience braced themselves for a prediction of lights out, bone-breaking attack. And instead, they got this surprise, the surprise of a lick and a nuzzle. A servant, God's servant, who is soft-spoken, who tenderly touches, who in a word is gentle. In our world of so much darkness, in our world of so much oppression, of so many things wrong personally and politically, of so much self-inflicted and other-perpetrated hurt, we also long for God to bring about justice, to reorder the world, to put all of the relationships of this world right. But God brings this universal flourishing, this wholeness, this delight, in a surprising way. According to Isaiah chapter 42, God has not come as we expect him to come. We expected a military force, a bully, a strong man, an alpha with a loud bark and a big bite. Instead, God came as Jesus. He came quiet. He came gentle. He became as a healer and a servant who stuck his neck out for us who is vulnerable with us. In the sentence, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, tell us, God is alarmingly gentle. He's alarmingly gentle. So we can be honest with him about who we are. And we can trust Jesus to take care of how this world is. So because God is gentle, we can trust Jesus. We can be honest with him about who we are. And we can trust him to take care of the world as it is. That's what, we're, that's what we're thinking about together. So I want, you to, I want you to know this. Roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ, God, through Isaiah, wrote this passage. 
He predicted Jesus' person in his ministry. And in this, what's called a servant song, this is the first servant song, we see three important questions addressed. And they're on your handout, as usual, with verses. Verses 1 through 4, how will God's gentleness deal with our weaknesses? Verses 5 through 7, how will God's gentleness deal with the world's injustice? And then the third question, verses 8 through 9, why can we trust God's gentleness? How is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And how is he going to do it with us in this world? So as usual, the points and the verses are on your handouts outline, as I just said. But we're going to begin at the beginning, too. Don't we always do that? We're going to look at the first question, verses 1 through 4. Okay, so let's look at that. Let's look at how will God's gentleness deal with us. I'm going to do something a little different. Can we start our look at these verses with like a confession and invitation? We're going to do that. I present myself and sometimes think of myself as a competent and successful person. Okay? I have a wife of nearly 15 years. I have 3.0 children. <laughs> I have a multi-decade mortgage. Probably 30. Two cars that sort of work. And I have done the same job ministry full-time for 10 years, and I happen to like it most of the time, okay? And over spring break, I had this amazing conversation that exposed that the reality that oftentimes, often at the very same time I have these thoughts about myself of success, and sometimes on existential repeat that I kind of feel like I'm, I can't get out of, I feel internally like a complete and utter imposter. Even here, up here right now. I have failure at parenting, a failure at marriage, a failure at mortgages, a failure at ministry. Over spring break, I had this conversation that triggered this kind of thought for me with an, uh, it's just incredibly honest. It was like a three or four hour conversation in a Panera of all places, but as, as usual. Uh, but it was with a very successful friend, a person that I had gone to grad school with, who is really doing what the grad school was set up to do. Uh, and he began to tell me about his recent nightmares that he's been having over the last several weeks. It was that kind of conversation. He's been having these intense, vivid dreams uh, about how he's found out as a fake or a fraud. And most of these dreams, often somehow he's in front of a crowd of people and he doesn't have his notes. And all of a sudden he's trying to teach or preach on a topic and he doesn't really know what to say. He's got nothing. Uh, and I immediately understood those dreams because I have dreams just like those all the time. And some of you have heard me talk about this. I have those on the regular, in fact. Um, my dreams, not only do I not have my notes up here, but somehow I've lost my pants. And so I'm going to look down now because <laughs> it's very scary. I, I am preaching without notes, don't know what I'm talking about, and somehow I'm in my underwear. Um, let's not think about that too much. So, and so, I don't have, but my, here's my guess. I don't have to put you on a couch uh, and talk about your dream life and your dream cycle uh, to know that you feel this way too. A lot of you. I want to invite you into an honesty that talks about why the Davidson Stress Olympics actually exist. Okay. What's, what's going on internally that makes them so captivating? Where's the medal stand after all, okay? None of us, not one of us in this room, okay? And even that person in your class that seems like he or she does all the reading. And I'm gonna say even that person in your class who plays division one basketball, none of us feels as successful as we look. Not one of us feels as successful as we look. In the words of verse three, 
Deep down inside, we feel like bruised plant reeds and faintly burning candle wicks. On the outside, we stand tall, like trees, but internally, we feel bruised and slightly sagging. We want to burn brightly with enthusiasm and competency, but our light can feel so faint and flickering. Our self-image can be filled with close to expiring smoke. Okay, ready? Another confessional invitation. Can we do this together? Let's keep going. Think of a time when you were found out. A moment when you didn't have your notes or your pants and you said something awful out loud and a group of people just all turned their heads, not even in the conversation, and looked at you with righteous indignation. Or maybe it was you oversold your ability at something and you kind of got caught in the lie or the brag and you ended up being in that situation and you went to do what you had promised you could do and, and basically said it was a hobby like second nature and you showed up and you couldn't put the tent together or you didn't know what you were doing and you tiled someone's floor wrong or you wrecked a relationship because you thought you knew what you're doing with people's hearts and emotions. Think of a time you were in the wrong like that and you knew it. Now I want you to imagine God there, okay? What would he do? What would he say in that moment? Verses one through four give us a picture of what God would do and he would say. And my best guess is that what God does and what he says is far, far more gentle than we expect. Look with me at verse three again. There we see what Jesus does, how Jesus touches a bruised reed. People who look useless, who feel beyond repair, and what does he do with them? He touches to mend them. He spiritually takes string and a popsicle stick and he straightens us out to grow again. Jesus bends low over people who are sputtering. People like us who could feel so spent even after a break that was supposed to be refreshing. And Jesus spiritually adds fuel with or and with cupped hands gently fans flagging flames of energy. He tends to our very desires. When we fail, or we can't stop feeling like we failed, even if we're not sure when we failed, we expect a coach's halftime dress down, don't we? We expect the stern fatherly lecture. But verse 2 tells us how Jesus uses his words with us. He will not cry aloud. He won't shriek over you. He will not lift up his voice. He won't shout. Jesus is lowering his volume in order not to draw attention to himself. This isn't the time for anger. This isn't the time for advice. Jesus knows that, and he wants to make room for us to be weak with him. He doesn't want to startle us back into fighting, or flying, or fleeing the scene, or just hiding. He wants to be with us. And finally, we need to know as compassionate as Jesus is with us, he's not like us. He experienced flame-quenching misery 
and soul-breaking sins all around him in his 33 years here on earth, but he did not grow faint, and he did not get discouraged. By the way, the word in the Hebrew for discouraged is literally bruised. He didn't bruise at a soul level. He lived a perfect life of love at all of life's tasks. All of his relationships were right. All so that he could give us his life record, which deserves God's delight, according to verse 1. In fact, by believing in Jesus, you could argue that God now has a greater love and a greater delight in you than he even does in Jesus. According to theologian William Bates, God, in giving Jesus to die for us, declared that our salvation was more dear to him than the life of his only son. I'm going to read that again. God, in giving him Jesus to die for us, declared that our salvation was more dear to him than the life of his only son. So even in that painful moment of failure, or when you feel the, the, the kind of mist or cloud in your brain of anxiety or depression, please don't forget to remember God's gentle heart for you. He delights in you. God is our truest friend. He always lets you in, according to Tim Keller, and he never lets you down. He always lets you in, and he never lets you down. But verse 4 suggests that God's gentleness is not only tender with our weakness, his gentleness is also strong enough to establish justice in the earth. We have a problem with this. We either want to err on one side or the other. We can't hold both of those things in tension. But we have to move collectively to our second main point, how God deals with the world's injustice. In verses 5 through 7, we see gentleness is actually a kind of controlled strength. In the words of a friend of mine, it's a power that intentionally limits itself. This means while gentleness is not superiority, Jesus does not raise his voice or use his hands to hurt or dominate other people. God's gentleness is also not inferiority. Jesus is gentle with weakness, but his gentleness is not weak. We see the strength of Jesus' gentleness in verse 5 and in verses 6 through 7. In verse 5, God reminds us that he created the heavens and the earth, and he stretched them out, and he spread out the earth and what comes from it. And as if that foundational work weren't enough, God gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Look, this is so revolutionary, it's hard to even take it. Unlike ancient Near Eastern gods of Isaiah's contemporary age, this God, literally in the Hebrew of this passage, the God, the Lord, this God is not limited in the scope of his creation powers. He created all of it. He created everything. It wasn't also, it was completely on purpose. It wasn't on accident. It wasn't some side effect of a cosmic battle with a rival. And it wasn't some sort of birth effect. It wasn't some sort of result of a romantic relationship with a goddess. This is a wildly new idea in the ancient Near East. And I want to put it to our context too. Unlike our contemporary atheistic or deistic understanding of reality, God also animates and sustains everything. 
by his breath or spirit. By the way, breath and spirit are the same word in Hebrew. Ruach. I appreciate the way that G.K. Chesterton puts it, as usual. It's a great way of words. He says this, We thank people for the gift of cigars or the gift of slippers at Christmas time. Can we thank no one for the birthday present of birth? Okay? We thank people for the gift of cigars or the gift of slippers at Christmas time. Can we thank no one for the birthday present of birth? You know, G.K. Chesterton is recognizing that there's a, there's a good thing. It's a good thing that something exists rather than nothing. And it's a good thing that he exists, that we exist at all. He's saying it's an astonishing and miraculous thing. And in fact, it's a gratitude that points outside of us sort of thing. And I think the sense of childlike wonder at the world move, makes verses 6 through 7 so poignant. As much as there's so much good in this world, there's also so much bad in this world. Just take the last three years of my safely suburban street. I'm just going to give you a sample. I live on Jeton Street, Jetson to the unfamiliar. Um, town of Davidson, slightly suburban. Okay, last uptown Davidson. Last three years, um, there has been a drug-related murder on my street, a hit-and-run killing on my street, a case of domestic abuse two, two houses down from me, and a human trafficking ring in the, in the nail salon. In the last three years, on my street in Davidson, okay? And I can tell you, when I heard about all of these cases, oftentimes days, if not weeks and months after the fact, I was like that neighbor that they interview on the local television station. <laughs> I can't believe it, <laughs> right? Don't they always say that? You seem like such a nice guy. <laughs> How could this happen on my street? You know, that sort of thing. Anyway, this does not even compare to what's going on in any given street in Syria or Venezuela or North Korea at this moment, right now, where people are not just murdered or abused or trafficked, they are also starved, imprisoned, and executed by their own governments. But what Jatan Street in North Korea both get at is our human inability to make the world better, at least in the ways that we want, all of the ways that we want the world to be better. Again, I'm not against doing something. Let's do something together. But we can't do everything. As a private individual citizen, I am ignorant, clearly. And in many nation states around the world, people in power are not ignorant, they're complicit. But according to verses 6 and 7, God is neither ignorant nor complicit. God the Father empowers his servant Jesus to be a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. But of course, you're saying, this hasn't happened yet. At least not for everyone. Not even on my street for Pete's sake. Yet Jesus' gentleness, even in bringing worldwide justice, is surprising. At the end of his life, Jesus used his gentleness, his controlled strength, to give breath to the people who unjustly beat him with sticks and whips. Jesus used his gentleness to give energetic spirit to the people in power who spoke false imprisonment and execution over him. 
Jesus used God's sustaining creative power to uphold the molecular structure of the individuals who mocked his power. And think of this, he kept the spittle together that struck him on the cheek when they spit on him. When he was suffocating to death on a cross. Jesus' gentleness not only enabled God to intimately know every dank, dark prison cell in existence firsthand. He also knows what every cowardly murder feels like. Jesus' self-sacrificial life didn't just his life and death did not just do that. They also gave God the power to change human beings from the inside out through Jesus' spirit. The spirit we see in verse 1. So Jesus' unjust imprisonment and death has already begun to heal and forgive those who are anything but gentle. And this is why the last words on the cross from Jesus' lips, suffocating to death, where it is finished. In the original Greek, that's a perfect tense verb. Here's what that means. Justice has been established, past tense. I'm going to nerding out on you. Okay, justice has been established, past tense, but justice will continue to have ongoing effects and consequences in the present and future tense. It is finished. Then, it's finishing now, and it will finish in the future. But look, the question is very fair. How is Jesus, how do I know Jesus is going to finish what he started? How can we trust God's gentleness will move from healing some of us to healing all of us and healing our world? The question brings us to a third and final question, our third and final point, verses 8 and 9. According to verse 8, God has staked everything, his very reputation on the servant's work. God's character stands or falls on the success of Jesus. Why? Because when God speaks a promise like this, God's character is on the line, and he knows it. This is why we have this long tradition in the Christian church of pleading God's promises back to him, of praying for the blind to have sight, of praying for the darkness to be lit, of praying for the captives to be set free. And this is also why God puts forward his name, his covenant name, the Lord or Yahweh, the Yah of Alleluia. Okay, that's what it means. Praise God, praise the Lord. He puts together his covenant name and his glory. God's name and his glory are meant to underline that God is faithful in his gentleness. God has bound up his name and he's bound up his glory in his people's welfare. That's crazy. God has said, you are mine, I am yours, in glory and in name. I can really only get this with a, with a folk song. Okay, I'm going to quote a Vance Joy song. It says this, this is the chorus. Hold on, darling, this body is yours. This body is yours and mine. Well, hold on, my darling. This mess was yours. Now your mess is mine. Your mess is mine. Your mess is mine. The body's yours, and this mess is mine. Your mess is mine. <laughs> In case you didn't hear it before, now you have heard it. God cares about us body and soul. But verse 9 tells us God's affection is more than a folk song feeling. God has this proven track record. The former things have come to pass. 
The former things that God is referencing were predicted in Isaiah 41 and were fulfilled in 539 BC. Isaiah foretold the victory of Cyrus. He called him by name in Isaiah 44. Cyrus, hundreds of years before this happened. And he said, he's going to destroy Babylon and he's going to liberate my people, Israel, from dark to light, from captivity to freedom, from spiritual blindness to obedience. And likewise, God promises with his good name and his character on the line that there will be new things. Beginning with Jesus of Nazareth in the first century AD and ending with the happy ending behind all happy endings that is to come. The one day, someday we all long for. What writer Cornelius Plantinga calls a universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight in the way that things ought to be. So I'm going to return to our beginning. God is promising, and it's as good as done in his mind, in his heart, and in this world. He's promising a world of gentleness and and controlled strength. He's promising a place where every pack of dogs, every pack of dogs, sprints downhill to give a nuzzle and a lick. He's promising a place where all human beings don't have to go to every street and nation with popsicle stick splints and cupped hands of counseling. He's promising that we get to run with two for one popsicles in our hands to each other that are melting in the light of God's glory. And we get to sing his praise and we get to shower each other in delight. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these words to us. There's a lot in this passage. Um, There's a lot for us to to meditate on. I'm just thankful for this huge vision. And I pray that you just give us some piece of it, some insight into it, some purchase, so that we might imagine spiritually and believe. In your name we pray. Amen.